Hello and welcome to the spiritguides.co.uk network radio show with your host Mark Chatterton. Our guest tonight is well-known author and lecturer Steve Taylor. Steve currently lectures at Leeds Metropolitan University on transpersonal psychology and peace psychology. He is also carrying out research into spiritual transformation at Liverpool's John Moores University. He is the author of several books including The Fall, Waking from Sleep and the just recently published Out of the Darkness. So a warm welcome to you Steve. Hi there, good evening. Okay, I'd like to start first by asking how did you get involved in the academic world in the first place and why the subjects of psychology and spirituality? Well, it was, um, it was a slow process. It was really once I became aware of the, uh, the area of transpersonal psychology, it's really, I think, once I began to read Ken Wilber's books about 10 years ago, I realized I'd never, never even heard of transpersonal psychology before. But as I read, I realized that this was what I was really interested in. It was um, transpersonal psychology basically means spiritual psychology. It's the, the psychology of spiritual experiences, the study of spirituality in a psychological way. So once I became aware of that, I realized that was, you know, that was where I wanted to go. And then I was, I was lucky enough to find that quite close to me in the northwest of England in Liverpool, they ran a, and a master's degree in, in transpersonal psychology. So I, you know, I did that a few years ago. And after that, um, you know, I, I continued with my writing. And I realized that in addition to writing popular books in a, you know, in a sort of popular, accessible style, I could also adapt my writing into a more academic area as well. So I began to write um, journal articles for um, transpersonal psychology journals or the Journal of Humanistic Psychology. So I kind of branched out into academic writing as well, although I still think of myself mainly as a, a, uh, you know, the author of popular accessible books. Okay, before we go on to talk about your two most recent books, I'd like to mention briefly your 2005 book, The Fall. Uh, in The Fall, you say that there is strong archaeological evidence for a shift in people's attitudes to each other approximately 6,000 years ago. This is the point at which a fall happened, with fighting and wars taking over from peace and harmony before that point. What would you say was the cause of the fall? Well, um I'd say that there was a, a psychological change which human beings underwent a few thousand years ago. It seems to have been, it's, it's very difficult to pinpoint the exact moment, but it seems to have happened over a few centuries, about 6,000 years ago. So I, I normally pinpoint around 4,000 BC. And that was a t time when there were massive cultural changes all over the Middle East and uh, in uh, Central Europe. And it was a time when warfare suddenly became much more intense. It was a time when the first hierarchical society developed and when women seemed to have become subordinated and oppressed by men. And at the same time, there was a big psychological change too. There was a new sense that people were individuals for the first time. They were really separate individuals, individuals who were separate to their environment separate to each other, even separate to their own bodies. And, yeah, it, it was almost as if individuality became much more intensified at that time. And I call this the ego explosion because the sense of ego became much more developed. And since then, I explain that this intensified ego is the cause of a lot of the suffering 
we experience in our lives. It causes this sense of separation we have between ourselves and the world. Uh, it causes selfishness and uh, a lack of empathy between people. And ultimately, it causes things like warfare, social oppression, male domination. So in the fall, I try to explain how all these characteristics were followed on from this um, psychological change. So that was really, uh, you know, the big change was what I call the ego explosion. Okay, if there was indeed a human fall, could you not argue that there was one for animals? Because nature itself seems very cruel with animals hunting and killing each other. Well, um, I think the important factor about the fall was that it was an intensification of self-consciousness. I think early human beings were certainly self-conscious to a degree. They definitely had a sense of their own identity and they definitely you know, were able to think logically or abstractly to a degree. But with the fall, with the EU explosion, those traits became much more intensified and the sense of individuality and self-consciousness became much more developed. But I don't think that could have happened with animals because animals, were, you know, most animals, or I think some animals do have a, a very a very low degree of self-consciousness and you know, they're able to recognize themselves in mirrors and uh, chimpanzees, for example, can do that. But, you know, there, there wasn't really a question of animals undergoing a fall because they didn't have a strong enough sense of individuality to begin with, if you like. Okay, let's move on to your previous book, what, Waking from Sleep, where you talk about individuals waking up and becoming aware of the world in a different way. You call this wakefulness. Is this the same as the classic notion of enlightenment as in Far Eastern tradition, or is it something more? It's similar, but the main difference is that um, awakening experiences are temporary. In, in Waking from Sleep, I was trying to understand why most of us have these temporary experiences when all of a sudden the world seems to make sense, all of a sudden we feel a sense of connection to our surroundings, we feel a part of the oneness, the world becomes much more beautiful and it becomes, everything becomes alive around us. But often those moments, they maybe, maybe last for a few seconds, a few minutes, possibly a few hours, but they often fade away. So I wanted to understand what happens in those moments. When, why do they arise? Why do they fade away? What can we do to turn them into a permanent state? And that's enlightenment. When we can hold on to this state in a permanent, continuous way, that's that's enlightenment. Uh, connected with enlightenment is the idea of consciousness. Um, what would you describe as consciousness being? That's quite a, a difficult subject because I actually teach a course on consciousness studies at um, my university. And there are many different interpretations of, of consciousness. Every philosopher or scientist seems to talk about it in a different way. But what I would say is the, the sort of essential definition of consciousness. If you think about, imagine if you're meditating, for example, and maybe in the beginning you're aware of your thoughts chattering away. Maybe you're aware of the, the sounds around you, maybe the humming of the fridge or the ticking of a clock or the leaves and the trees outside rustling. But eventually, after a while, if you meditate fairly successfully, your mind becomes quieter and the, that thought chatter starts to fade away and you enter a very focused and a very still state of being. 
and you realize that you're there's still a consciousness there but you're not actually conscious of anything you're not conscious of any thoughts and maybe you know, you're no longer as conscious maybe the sounds are there you can hear them but you they're not really uh causing any any difference in your state of focused stillness so when you reach that state of pure consciousness when there's no activity in your mind when your mind is completely still that i, I would say is that's pure consciousness and everything else you know the uh, the thinking, consciousness, perception, everything flows out from that original state of pure consciousness. Would you say there is a difference between consciousness and the soul, or are these the same thing? Um, yeah, I think really people are using different terminology and describing essentially the same experience or the same state. You know, if, if you reach that state of inner quietness, which I've just talked about, the state when you're, you're conscious, but you're not conscious of anything. Maybe that is your essential life energy, the energy or the awareness inside you in those moments is what some people would call the soul or the spirit. But yeah, I think it's essentially the same, same state. Okay, let's move on to your latest book, Out of the Darkness, which has just recently been published. In it, you look at how particular traumas, such as suffering, illness, addiction, and near-death experiences, to name a few, how these have affected people and brought about enlightenment in their lives. I would like to ask, is it really necessary for people to have to undergo some sort of trauma to achieve this sense of peace and oneness, or should we be able to achieve this without suffering? It would be great if we could achieve it without suffering, and I think... In some cases we can, but unfortunately, in, in almost every case I'm, I'm aware of, I did a lot of research from a book, I spoke to 32 people in the actual book and I've continued to do research after the publication of the book. So I've talked to another 30 or so people who've undergone a shift into spiritual wakefulness or enlightenment. And they all, in every single case, it always happened maybe not only because of, but it happened after a period of in, intense turmoil. But having said that, I think there's, there's a much more slow, incremental, gradual kind of spiritual development which can occur through spiritual practice, through gradually changing the structure of our psyche, if you like, gradually allowing an opening where spirit can come through. But that can happen over, over years, even decades, that kind of slow, progressive spiritual practice, spiritual development. But when it's a sudden shift from a normal state of consciousness suddenly into a permanent transformative state, uh, you know, this shift can happen in a matter of seconds, a matter of minutes. And that usually is caused by intense suffering. And it's almost as if the suffering builds up to such an intensity that the normal ego gives away it's almost like the you know the structure of the ego can no longer withstand the pressure almost like an earthquake like a building collapsing in an earthquake and i think the other important factor is that when we undergo suffering in our lives it's often because a lot of the psychological attachments which we depend on for our from our well-being for example hopes or beliefs uh, status and wealth could be people we depend on 
Um, it, you know, it could be a sense of being a, an important person, a sense of being a successful person. Often, when these things are, are taken away, when we experience failure and loss, all of these cycle attachments break down. And because these attachments prop up the normal ego, they, they bolster the normal ego, suddenly the ego becomes incredibly fragile and c can collapse altogether. So that often happens um, after intense suffering. And it's almost as if there's a, there's a different higher self latent inside us. And when the normal ego caves in, there's suddenly a space for this latent higher self to, to flourish and emerge. Almost like, um, yeah, like a, a butterfly emerging out of a chrysalis. Okay, in the book, uh, Out of the Darkness, you've interviewed several well-known spiritual teachers, including Eckhart Tolle, Byron Katie, and Catherine Ingram. What is it that we can learn from them that, that our own life experiences don't teach us? I think spiritual teachers like um, Eckhart Tolle, Byron Katie, in a sense, they're not really any different from other people I spoke to. Um, I spoke to, as I said, I spoke to about 30 people who'd undergone this shift. And in a sense, they were all spiritual teachers to a degree. They just hadn't yet become well-known. And another factor was that often when people undergo this experience, it takes often a few years for them to really understand what's happened to them and for them to integrate it into their ordinary lives. Particularly because a lot of the people I spoke to didn't have a, a background in spirituality, uh, so they didn't really understand the new state they were in. They knew they felt a sense of well-being, they felt a, a sense of meaning, but they didn't really know why. So at the same time, they were a little bit confused, and often the people around them didn't understand. They tried to speak to them about it, but they only faced incomprehension. So... You know, slowly, over a few years, they began to read books about spirituality, to gravitate to other spiritually developed people. And slowly, they began to understand what happened to them. And at that point, I think when, once you fully understand what's happened and you integrate it into your life, at that point, in a sense, all of the people could become spiritual teachers. And I think some of them are becoming teachers. But also, I think people like Eckhart Tolle, Baron Katie, they also underwent quite a quite a, what I would call, high-intensity awakening as well. I mean, I think there were different levels of enlightenment or awakening. And obviously, these kind of teachers experience it to a very intense degree. And for that reason, they're probably also likely to become more respected and more uh, admired as, as spiritual teachers. So would you say potentially all human beings can achieve uh, some sort of state of being, of, of awakening, but why is it that some do achieve it and some don't? I do think that, the, that this latent higher self, which the, uh, the shifters, as I call them in the book, which they transform into, I, I do think that it's latent inside everybody to some degree. I think it's there as a potential inside all human beings. Maybe it's potentially the, the next stage of our evolutionary development, next stage of the evolution of consciousness. And I think all higher stages are somehow latent, waiting to be uncovered. So I think in that sense, you know, it is lying in wait for the, the whole of the human race. But I don't think maybe not everybody is, 
is actually ready for it yet. And there are, there are some reasons. I mean, obviously, millions of people go through intense suffering. We all go through intense suffering at some stage in our lives. But it does seem that only a small minority of people uh, emerge through that suffering and shift into this, this higher state. So there are some differences which separate people who do experience transformation and the people who just experience more suffering, who don't get anything positive from it. And one of the factors was, first of all, that um, it was people who were willing to face their predicament. Often when we experience suffering, we, we tend to try to avoid thinking about what's happening or facing the reality of what's happening. So the first thing is you need to really face what's happening to you even the fact that you, you're possibly going to die in a certain amount of time. And then you also have to accept it too. It's obviously very, um, it's very understandable and necessary in some cases to fight against your predicament, to try to resist what's happening. But if you resist too much, um, then you'll block any transformational potential. You need to open up to what's happening, to accept it, and you know, even accept the possibility that you're going to die without being devastated, without feeling bitterness, without feeling any you know um, sense of uh, failure, any sense of loss. If you fully accept what's happening, and even when you surrender to it, if you let go and just surrender to your predicament, and that's the kind of attitude or state of mind which can allow the, the transformation to take place. Because you mentioned about everyone sort of having a, a shift in consciousness. Do you have any particular views on the idea that um, next year, 2012, is going to be a pivotal year and a big shift in consciousness for the whole population at all? Um, I'm not... I mean, as I've just suggested, I do think there is an evolution in consciousness occurring... I think there's a whole process of um, evolution in consciousness which has taken place right from the beginnings of, of life, millions of years ago, right through the evolution of, of life on Earth, continuing right up to the present. It's going to continue in the future too. It's the, an intensification of consciousness, an increase in awareness of reality, an increase in self-awareness, an increase in connection to the universe. So I think in that process, I do feel that it's somehow picking up speed at the moment. As I've said, I've spoken to a lot of people who've had awakening experiences. I've spoken to a lot of people who've undergone a permanent shift into uh, enlightenment. And I've, I've been astounded at how easy it is to, to find these people. And they're everywhere around me. People, so-called ordinary people, you know, living normal lives with ordinary jobs, they've all undergone this transformation. I mean, I found uh, one of my students at college had undergone it. One of my colleagues, a tutor, it happened to him as well. So I think there are, you know, there are thousands of these people all around us, even, even if we don't know it, even if they don't really know it because they don't really understand what's happened to them. But whether that's um, related to one particular year in the calendar, um, um, I, I tend to be a bit dubious about that. I, I tend to uh, to believe that next year won't be well really really have any special significance okay um in your book you mention a man called russell williams who i know has been a great influence on you could you tell us what it is about him that makes him so special well i think like 
like a lot of enlightened people, if you first met Russell, he looks quite very ordinary, very normal. You wouldn't think that he was anything special, but if you spent a few minutes in his company, you'd slowly begin to notice something about him and about you as well. You'd notice a change inside yourself. If you sat down and talked to him, even if it was only about trivial things, you'd, after 15, 20 minutes, you'd notice a change in your, in your being. You'd notice, notice a feeling of well-being, uh, a sense of inner stillness, an energy arising inside you. And you'd realize that from, after a while that that energy is actually coming from him. Because I think like all enlightened people, he has a very powerful energy radiating from him, very powerful spiritual energy. And if you're in his company, you, you naturally absorb that energy. And so that you become, you enter a state of stillness, a state of wakefulness yourself. And, and then obviously, I go to see, Russell holds meetings twice a week. And he's a, he's a very wise man. He says lots of enlightened, um, you know, he speaks a lot of, uh, a lot of sense and on, on spiritual matters. So on an intellectual level, it makes a lot of sense. You, you gain a lot too, but it's mainly a, a feeling-based um, encounter. The, you know, the, the sense of well-being which you get from being in his company is the main thing. But he's also amazing because he's, he's 90 years old now. It was his 90th birthday last week. And he was, a, you know, he was another person who underwent incredible suffering in his early life. He, he had an amazingly eventful early life. Um, he, was, he was at the, um, the Dunkirk landings in the Second World War. He was involved in the Blitz. And it was, it was mainly his experiences in the war, which left him in a, a state of nervous breakdown. And it was really just a few years after that when he experienced enlightenment. But again, he was completely uneducated. He knew nothing about spiritual matters. So he had no idea what happened to him. He knew that he felt different. He knew that he could understand something. He could see something which he'd never experienced before. But he didn't know what it was, and he, he couldn't really explain it to other people. But sometime in the 1950s, he met a, a Buddhist teacher but by chance, and he started talking to the the Buddhist guy, explaining his views on and, and how he saw the world. And the guy, who happened to be the, the president of the, the Buddhist Society of England at the time, he said, that's, that's pure Buddhism, you're speaking pure Buddhism. So Russell, he, he's never become a Buddhist, but he was welcomed into the, the Buddhist Society of the UK. And eventually he moved to Manchester to be a part of the Buddhist Society of Manchester. And he's been the president of that society for over 50 years now. Because obviously with Buddhism, there's a belief in reincarnation. Do you have any particular thoughts about reincarnation at all? It's a matter where, um, for me personally, I haven't made my mind up yet. Because I can see some evidence for reincarnation. I can see it in my own children because I have three young children. And I could tell from the the moment my children were born, I could see that they had their own individual personalities. And when I see them now, it's definitely the same personality they have now, which they were born with. It's just a, that personality has unfolded and developed. But it's essentially the same personality. And they all have three completely different personalities. You know, one's very extroverted. That's Ted, my, my five-year-old boy. He's a crazy, extroverted, loud guy. 
And there's Hugh, my oldest boy, who's very quiet and gentle. And we have a, a baby son who's, uh, well, maybe somewhere in the middle. But they're all completely different. And they're also completely different to me and my wife's personality too. And it doesn't seem to be not just a mixture of our two personalities. They seem to have three distinct personalities which have come from somewhere else. So in a sense, reincarnation could explain that because obviously in those terms, you could say that they are the incarnations of previous personalities, personalities from previous lives. And I also, I also have um, a good friend who, who, or no, who knows or believes that he's a reincarnation, reincarnation or the incarnation of another person. But I think maybe the thing which um, stops me being completely convinced about um, reincarnation is the idea that it could be just a, a way of compensating for the difficulties of, of the, this life. Because obviously the, the Christian idea of heaven or the Islamic idea of heaven is really just a compensation for the deprivations and sufferings of this life. It's really just a kind of collective pipe dream which makes up for all the bad things you have to go through on this earth. You know, eventually, you know, this life may be difficult, but eventually we're going to go to heaven where we'll be able to satisfy all our desires and have everything we want and live forever. So it's a kind of a pipe dream. It's a compensation. So sometimes I think that reincarnation could be similar, that people are saying to themselves, oh, well, this life is very difficult and born into a very difficult circumstances, a very unfair society. But in the next life, things will be better. You know, so in that sense, it, it seems like to, you know, it has a, a consoling or compensating function. Okay, because obviously a lot of people have different, apart from reincarnation, people have beliefs in angels, spirit guides, and they might say my spirit guide told me this or my angel told me this or sometimes they say my higher self told me this or even God told me this. Would you argue perhaps that these are all different names for the same sort of energy force and what would you personally call this energy force? I think that's possible. Um, for me... I think the important thing about these experiences is that obviously we normally experience ourselves as this ego, this narrow, quite restricted self, which chatters away in our heads, which has certain memories, certain beliefs, certain hopes for the future, etc. And which also has a, a sense of being a part of a culture or a society, and which gives us some kind of identity. But that is quite, um, that is our superficial ego, our surface self, if you like. And even though it's quite fragile and quite superficial, it kind of dominates our, our consciousness. But there are certain moments when that self seems to fade away, either becomes very quiet or it dissolves away. And in those moments, there seems to be a space for other identities, other forces, other energies to come through. And, you know, I think there is... There's a whole world of different phenomena, different energies which are outside the normal self. It's a big mistake to assume, which a lot of people do, that the normal self is an absolute identity, which is our true identity. I think, you know, once the normal self does fade away, then we do open up to all these other possibilities, all these other energies. So I'd say that's, for me, that's the important factor which is happening there. Okay. Um, obviously, we've got a draw to a close soon but i've just got one final question um obviously you've you've only just brought out out of the darkness recently but have you got any more books in the pipeline what what, what are your plans for the future 
Well, I'm actually writing a new book, which in some ways it's a return to the fall. And but the fall was a lot of fall was anthropological. It, it dealt with um, investigated different societies, different cultures, and different tribes around the world. It was also historical. It went back thousands of years, thousands of years into the human race's past. But in my new book, I'm investigating similar territory, but from a psychological point of view. One of the main ideas of the fall was that human beings are suffering from a psychological um, disorder that we're partially insane. And I'm investigating that idea in more detail and trying to get to the roots of the, the psychological disorder which we're suffering from, which manifests itself in our crazy materialism, our crazy desire for status and power, and all the, the crazy oppression and, and warfare and brutality which fills human history. And also it manifests itself in the the strange restlessness which we feel, the strange discontent, and the constant wanting, wanting more, wanting better, wanting this, wanting that, never coming to rest, always feeling we have to strive and achieve more. So I think all, all of these are really symptoms of a, an underlying mental disorder which, which is so normal that most human beings don't even realize it's there. So I'm calling this, this mental disorder egomania because it's all madness which is connected with the ego. And I'm trying to explain its characteristics and its causes. But most importantly, I'm trying to show how we're going to, how we can heal this mental disorder and transcend it and emerge into a new state of harmony. So presumably this book will be out next year? Yeah, ironically enough, it will be out in, in 2012. <laughs> so, so for me, it will, be a, it will be a significant year after all. Good. Well, hopefully, hopefully the world won't come to an end. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, no one will read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's been fascinating talking to you tonight, Steve. And uh, obviously, lots more questions I'd like to ask you, but you've been very helpful. And hopefully, people listening in will have learned a lot. And just a, another plug for your book, Out of the Darkness, which is on um, Hay House Publishing. But thank you very much, Steve, and wish you well for your next book. Yeah, you're welcome. That's, that's great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks.